Welcome to the Director's Podium. I'm your host, Adam Christie. Our guest today is the host of the Habit series published by GIA and is the former director of bands at Wando High School in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. He is a graduate of the New England Conservatory of Music. He currently serves as the conductor of the Charleston Wind Symphony. In 2010, he was elected to the prestigious American Bandmasters Association. You can check out his books and the books a part of his Habits series at HabitsUniversal.com. Again, that's HabitsUniversal.com. Please welcome Scott Rush. Scott, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Adam. I really appreciate the kind invitation uh, to be with you today. Scott, you wrote the Habits series, and um, I'd like to circle to that very core of the word habit. How would you define habit? Well, that's a great question. You know, we've done this series since 2005, and I don't know that anybody's ever asked me that question. But for me, a habit is when knowledge, skill, culture, and purpose synergistically um, collide to create success through a pattern of repetition uh, that results in a strong core value. And, you know, that word synergy means that the sum of the parts are greater than the individual parts themselves. Uh, So all those things kind of come together. And one of my favorite quotes um, from John Gordon is, uh, creating culture of excellence is not just one thing, it's everything. Culture drives expectations and beliefs. Expectations and beliefs drive behaviors. Behaviors drive habits. And habits create the future. So uh, if we want to create success in our future, uh, we want to have great habits. And so that's where that whole idea of knowledge and skill and purpose and culture kind of collide to create that uh, wonderful synergy. Why do you think it is that good habits are very hard to keep up with, yet bad habits are very easy to keep doing? Well, that's a a great question. I mean, I I think that um, anytime we try to establish uh, a great habit, it, it requires great leadership. And um, so I agree with you. I think it's harder to um, actually create a great habit uh, and it's easier for us to fall into bad habits. So the whole idea of, um, like I said, the the idea of of leadership and the collaboration piece um, to me has a lot to do with um, this idea of creating a habit for success because we want those habits of success to affect other people. Habits of success, we'll pivot right off that to leadership. What is your definition of a leader? A leader to me is selfless uh, to the extent that he or she gives to others in a meaningful way. Um, a leader should have character uh, and a moral compass. And I mean, what I mean by that is as opposed to, you know, a dictatorship or, you know, one way direction. Um and that leaders should understand the need to create a safe environment for collaboration where the intent is to serve other people, to help them create their maximum potential. Um, to me, an effective leader creates connection through trusting cooperation and then the idea of being vulnerable. Would you say that being a teacher and being a leader are very similar? Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that obviously to be a successful teacher, um, there has to be 
great leadership involved. And like I said, to me, that has more to do with the kind of culture you create. Um, it's a collaborative process. And like I said, um, you know, as opposed to the, the dictatorship model, which is kind of one way direction, I see it as almost being the pebble that hits the water that creates ripples. And that's our job is to be the initiator, the initiator of that. What would you say has been your greatest challenge as a leader or conductor? Probably my greatest challenge as a leader have been the two situations uh, that I went into as a band director. Um, the first situation that I went into, uh, I followed a lady who had been there. She was kind of the matriarch of band directors, and she had been at the same school for 47 years. And talking about someone who um, changed the culture for a community, I mean, she changed the culture. And uh, I remember a situation, she brought a clarinet player into her office and she was saying, you know, I know that your mother would not approve. And then she said, wait a minute, I taught your grandmother <laughs> and I know that your grandmother was, wouldn't approve. But in that situation, um, the, the culture was in place. And the, the beauty of that was she and I had the opportunity to teach together for three years. So that was great because the transition was smooth, which was wonderful. Um, the challenge in that situation was not culture. It was actually musical. Uh, and so there was lots of room for growth and, you know, potential, musical potential. And so um, that was the challenge in the first situation. The second situation is when I went to Wando High School. The director who was there before me did a wonderful job musically and had the band at a really pretty high level of performance. And the challenge there was actually the culture piece. You know, there was really an opportunity to to make relationships and, and all of, you know, there was certainly room for musical growth, um, but there was, um, a, the challenge was building a, a nurturing culture, if you will. And, you know, that was done through great student leadership, great relationships with the students, great theaters, uh, you know, like middle school theaters. And we were just able to create a culture uh, and a community. And then what ended up happening with that was the program grew. So. When I got there, we had about uh, 98 students in the program and it grew to, you know, about 290 students in the program. Wow. So over time. So it was the, those both those situations were challenges uh, in the sense that uh, they were different situations, but required different types of leadership. The second part to that question is what is the toughest decision you've ever had to make as a leader? I think. The first tough decision that I really had to make as a leader was leaving Wando High School. I was there for 15 years. Every moment there was fantastic. Uh, I loved those students and I actually underestimated what that would be like uh, to leave the students. Uh, I missed the students terribly when I left there, but I felt like I moved to a director of fine and performing arts position in a school district and I felt like that I could exponentially help more students and teachers by doing that. And, you know, having written the habit series, uh, I felt like that was a, a wonderful bridge. And it turned out that that was true. Like I really, what I really loved doing uh, as a director of fine and performing arts was um, like being a teacher coach. So I am, I really like that. And I use some of our, like our habit synergy model is um, knowledge, effective communication, physical energy, musicianship, and who you are as a, as a music educator. 
I was really able to use that kind of as a coaching model uh, when I became a director of fighting performing arts. Let's talk about your finest moment. What would you say was your finest moment as a leader? Well, I, you know, I think if you seek to lead others, I don't think that you can define like a finest moment. Um, I think the, the value of a leader is measured by the success of the people you lead. And so um, if the entire community of people um, feel safe and they feel loved and cared for, then that's the first step in creating, you know, a world-class culture. Um, I can tell you that building a culture where people feel valued and loved is really important to me. You know, that whole idea, they don't care how much you know till they know how much you care or you must connect before you can correct. Um, my experience has been the music making is actually done with more depth and meaning when the culture is in place. When, when the person who's in front of the group you know, maybe be driven by certain things, but they don't really care for the students. You know, there's a, there's a barrier there where you can only go so far, but when the teacher leader is vulnerable and creates an environment where students, um, you know, feel loved and cared for, then I think, you know, magic happens. One of the things we had at Wando High School, you know, when we had the growth in the program, People would ask me, you know, why, you know, how do you, you know, what's the, how do you attribute the retention rate and the growth in the program? And I would say to them, well, I think it was because a high level of music making. I said, but maybe more importantly, uh, we had something called freshman interviews. And every Wednesday afternoon, we would, if they were new to the program, meaning they were like freshmen or they were, you know, moved in, new to the program, we would do freshman interviews and about 15 minutes per student. And I would ask them all these questions like, you know, where do you see yourself five years from now? Where do you see yourself 10 years from now? Uh, what's the best vacation you've ever taken with your family? Because they would tell me something about their family. You know, who's your favorite musical artist? But anyway, I'd ask them all these questions. But the very first thing I would say to them when they would come in for the interviews, I would say, if we're going to spend the next four years together, I really want to get to know you. And then my words and actions had to bear that out. And so, you know, I think that anything that we can do like that, where, whether we're um, doing an all about me assignment or the freshman interview, somebody told me the other day, they do a movie night regularly in their program, uh, which I think is really cool. I think, like I said, when you build the right kind of culture and you kind of say to students, you know, that you believe in their success, then uh, I think then the music making can have depth and meaning. And I think, you know, it's, it's, as I always say, we're in the music business and the people business. It's not either or it's and. So you are at one school where you worked very hard to build up the performance part of it. And another where you worked very hard to build up the culture part of it. What do you think is harder? Um, changing a culture in a school or changing the way that they perform? I think they're both difficult um, because there's so many things about both that that have to marry each other in the situation. Well, really, in both situations, you know, you can't pull students towards anything. Um, you have to create ownership. And you when you create ownership, sometimes you have to create musical ownership and sometimes you have to create culture ownership. 
And there's nothing wrong in the musical ownership idea to say, uh, we're going to have high standards in this program. And I believe with all my heart that you can reach those high standards. And then you have to have a methodology for um, knowing how to get students from point A to point B musically. And then, um, you know, ultimately, obviously, we want all students to fall in love with and resonate with music. So that's really our overall and our overarching goal is to get students to fall in love with music. The other side of that is you may have a situation where the degree of music making is high and you can get to that place. Um, but sometimes there's a disconnect. And, you know, you, when that happens, you know, for instance, you could have a high degree of music making, but you could also have a really high degree of burnout, uh, student burnout and teacher burnout. So that's where the culture piece comes in. It really is a balancing act. And I think they're both difficult, but I think they also require different skills in terms of being a change agent. So going through the programs that you had, how did you use leadership in those? Here's an interesting thing about this question. We used, while I was at Wando High School, we, really at, at both programs, we used what I now consider to be somewhat of an old model. Um, and that is we use the 10-80-10 principle, which is kind of a business uh, model where there's 10% positive leaders, 80% followers, and 10% negative leaders. Um, and we would give the, the student leadership team a lot of training, and it was really important. And I'm not saying it's a bad model um, because it's not. I just believe that we've gotten to a place where we want to lead all students. And, you know, it kind of goes back to the, you can't lead others till you lead yourself, right? And so, you know, Tim Lassenheiser and I wrote a book called Pathway to Success, and we started with two statements. The first one was, um, all means all. And literally what we meant by that was the idea that you could have a situation where you train the top 10% and then go, well, what about the others, right? You know, when are we gonna reach the other students? Uh, and so if you literally start with fundamentals or habits, so like in, in Pathway to Success, we started with communication, attitude, honesty, integrity, trust, self-discipline, emotional health, um, goal setting, relationships, cooperation, selflessness, uh, loyalty, and creating a moonshot. Well, if you think about those things, you know, every student can move up that, you know, metaphorical mountain, but the reality is that some of them may only move up a few levels. And then as they get older, they move, move up a few other more levels. Uh, and uh, the other part of that is we felt like, Tim and I felt like in that model that it was really important to talk about emotional health. Um, and what I mean by that, not, a, not, you know, emotional health basically has to do with how we react to things. Um, and so not, not like, you know, mental illness, we're not equipped to handle things like that. But as far as emotional health is concerned, you know, get students to really connect with their own emotions and how they relate to things. So it was really important for, you know, all students to do that. So we started with this model, the 10-80-10, and we spent lots of years, you know, training the, the leaders. Uh, but the reality is, you know, I think in today's world, uh, I really think that, you know, we need to train every student. And I, that doesn't mean, let's see how I can say we train all students to create connection through trust and cooperation. 
and we encourage students to take ownership and we passionately strive to make a difference in their lives. Um, we train the leaders, that top 10%, to perpetuate creating connection through trust and cooperation and relationship building. Um, and the synergy builds culture and purpose, both musically and personally. So like never before has it been more evident that you don't have to have a title to lead, if that makes sense. Um, you know, we need, and we also need those rock star leaders to create that pathway towards success and encourage them to help everyone take ownership of the program. I hope, I hope that makes sense. I am interested in, you talked about a moonshot, creating a moonshot. What do you mean by that? So my experience has been that if you just give young people permission to dream big, that they can far exceed um, what we think is possible if we just give them that opportunity. And so the very top level of our pathway to success model that Tim and I use um, is a culture of excellence. But just above that is the idea of creating a moonshot. So I'll give you a couple of examples of moonshots. Um, there was a young lady named Veronica Leahy who was in the Charlotte area. And um, she wanted to create an organization called Melodic Miners. And she went to some folks at her school and said, you know, we want to create this idea of, of playing concerts, you know, out in the community and, and doing some outreach things. And uh, the people told her that it was too lofty. It was just too lofty. And so she decided, she and some of her friends, when she was in the 10th grade, decided, decided to start a nonprofit organization, and they called it Melodic Miners. And they played in children's homes, and they did sock hops for the old folks' home, and they played in malls, and they... Um, you know, they went into children's hospitals and, and had like, you know, musical petting zoos and all, all kinds of things. Uh, another example is when I was at Wando High School, I used to tell the students they would do a, a leadership project, like a service project, and they had to do it individually. They couldn't do it together. Well, these two young men came into my office one day and they said, we want to talk to you about our leadership project. And I said, y'all want to do this together? And they said, yes. I said, no. Nope. The, you know, the wording in the application says you have to do it each individually. And one of the young men said, you got, you know, hear us out. I said, okay. And he said, I'm a senior. He's a junior. If we do this together, we can perpetuate this idea. And I said, all right, tell me the idea. And he said, we'd like to start something called music mentors. We'd like to take our all state students over to one of the middle schools and provide free private lessons for students who can otherwise not um, you know, afford it or, or, or not maybe taking private lessons. And we'd like to raise money to provide an instrument for students. Uh, if there's a student who couldn't afford, you know, to purchase an instrument, we want to reward a student who's kind of got lots of potential. And I just thought it was a great idea. So the whole idea of creating a moonshot is just getting students to think outside of the box, uh, maybe even outside of their programs and um, to do something meaningful. Scott, let's talk a little bit about your books. Um, you wrote the Habit series. You're, you know, the founder of that. And I'm wondering, I know this is a deep question, but what would you say to the question of what do you think your books offer to the world? That is a big, deep question. Um, 
There are 14 books in the series, and it's it's like having you know multiple children. Um, <laughs> they all have different personalities, and they kind of all have a different purpose. Um, so let me I'll start by sharing you, with you our um, we call it our habits team mission statement, and it actually starts with the words one team, um, and it's. Um, our mission is to provide music teachers and students valuable resources that help create a collaborative environment for music making and to connect teachers and students in a significant way through music, love, uh, passion, vision, and purpose. So we have three different types of books in the series. Um, the first one is what we call how-to books. Um, they're books for directors, and it's kind of the goal is to kind of put tools in teachers' toolboxes. And um, a lot of times we'll have teachers who will tell us that they, you know, they keep their book open on their desk or they keep it, you know, uh, available to them because they want to know, you know, teaching strategies for what to teach and how to teach it. And um, so our how-to books are things like um, Habits of Successful Band Director, Habits of Successful Middle School Band Director, The Evolution of a Successful Band Director, which is a, a workbook type um, resource, and then um, habits of significant band director. And then we also have, for strings, we have habits of successful orchestra director. And for choir, we have habits of successful choir director. So those are kind of our how-to books. Um, the second category that we have are method books. And we have um, three band method books. They're really designed to take what I call the components applying, you know, which is timing, tuning, tone, technique, balance, balloon, articulations, dynamics, phrasing, musicianship, you know, actually clarity, you could just add all those words to, to take the components of playing and give teachers a resource to go, here's how you teach these things. And for the teachers to be able to say to students, the why behind, you know, uh, teaching these things. Because uh, like I said earlier, you know, ultimately we want students to fall in love with music and music making. Um, so we have three band method books. We have Habits of Successful Beginner Band Musician, which is our newest beginner band method book. We have uh, habits of successful musician and habits of a successful uh, middle school musician. Uh, and then we have for strings, we have two method books. We have habits of successful middle level string musician and habits of successful string musician. And then for choir, we have a wonderful method book called habits of successful choral musician. And then the, the third category that we have for our books are or what we call basically culture building books. So, you know, the book that I said that Tim and I did, which is Pathway to Success, Habits for Creating a Culture of Excellence in Band, Choir, and Orchestra. And then Jeremy Lane and I did a book called Quality of Life Habits for a Successful Band Director. But, you know, ultimately, we hope our resources make a difference in the lives of students and teachers, you know, musically and personally. What do you think is the biggest leadership myth that you've ever heard? Wow. Um, there are two that jump out to me. Uh, the first one is that you must have a title to lead. You know, we were talking about that earlier, um, that um, this kind of goes back to the, the idea that, you know, we have the opportunity to make a decision when we wake up in the morning, you know, whether we want to make a difference. Uh, we have the opportunity to be positive. Uh, we have the opportunity to make up our bed. Uh, we have the opportunity to, to make one good decision after the other. And, um, we have the you know, choices for our attitude and our outlook and how we respond to things. Um, so being really intentional about being a good leader of self uh, is, you know, how we make a difference. So, you know, you don't have to have a title to lead. And then the other thing, I guess the other myth to me is, 
um, that managers are good leaders. You can be a good manager, but sometimes good managers create efficient systems, but they don't create effective cultures. And one of my favorite quotes is um, culture trump strategy every time. And so, you know, where good management can be a positive skill, it's better to create a culture that's collaborative where it doesn't matter who gets the credit. And it goes back to that whole trusting cooperation, selflessness thing. What was your experience like and what advice do you have um, for dealing with administrators or administration? I feel like I have a unique perspective about this because, you know, I was in the trenches for 22 years uh, and then I was a, a music administrator for six years. You know, I really think every teacher should get the opportunity to serve in some type of administrative role, even if they could just do it, you know, teleport themselves just for a little while and do it and then come back to the classroom. Because you really do see things from a completely different perspective. You see things globally and you get information in that you would not have had otherwise. Um, you also get a chance to see that there are many administrators who don't necessarily resonate with arts, you know, don't necessarily resonate with, art, with arts education. Um, that's why I think it's really important for school districts to have, you know, uh, an arts administrator who can clearly articulate the value of you know, arts education on all levels. But as far as kind of dealing with uh, administrators, you know, I think this whole thing, you know, um, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I think that's true with adults too. You know, if you just build a relationship where the relationship's built on always needing something, that's not always, you know, the best type of relationship. Um, it's a very needy relationship. And so, you know, I found that it was really important to just build relationships with my administrators. Um, I had the most amazing principal when I was at Wando High School, Lucy Beckham. Uh, matter of fact, she was national principal of the year in 2011. And one of the things that was so amazing about her was that she knew how to convey excellence to every member of the team. Nothing was more important than anything else in the school and she just knew how to create a culture of excellence, both in terms of building relationships with people, but also just saying, you know, I believe that what you do is important. And so I think, you know, one of the things that she and what happened with the with Lucy and I was every time we met, you know, we'd probably spend the first seven or eight minutes in her office talking about her family. And um, my wife and I were were friends with uh, her daughter and son-in-law and son. And we knew their grandkids, you know, we knew her grandkids and knew their kids. And we'd spend time talking about family first. And it really makes a difference, you know, to, to build a relationship with your administration. And so that, if I had to give advice for someone, it would be, you know, don't put yourself in a situation where the only time you go to see your administration is when you need something, you know, truly go out of your way to build those relationships and uh, the rest will take care of itself. Do you feel that your time as filling in for them in an administrator role or your time as a fine arts director, um, do you feel like that global perspective changed the way your relationship was with your administrators? Yeah, I, I really do. I mean, I, I think, you know, it was really interesting when I went to the director of fine and performing arts position, you know, you're basically changing your environment from a 
predominantly student uh, and staff culture uh, of people that you had spent lots of time building great relationships with to just being around adults. And it was really important, uh, I thought, to, to make relationships with people. And interestingly enough, I found that it, it was harder to build, um, let me say it this way, I had to work harder to build authentic relationships with the adults. Um, but it was worth the time to do that. And um, especially in those situations, if you can be a great listener and really listen to what other people have to say and not necessarily try to solve all the problems, but just be a great listener, that collectively you can form a team where it will get done. Well, Scott, let's talk a little bit about your weaknesses, if you're willing to talk about it. What were your weaknesses and how did you compensate for those? I, we, I could probably talk for days about my weaknesses, but uh, I think there's several that kind of stand out for me in terms of things that I had to work through. The first one was, you know, the idea of just being married to the job and getting that whole quality of life thing out of kilter. Um, you know, I told you that Jeremy Lane and I wrote this book together called Quality of Life Issues, you know, for, for band directors. And that really came out of a discussion that Jeremy and I had where I said to him, hey, I'm the poster child for why this book needs to be written. And it was actually going through that process of presenting workshops and kind of acknowledging, you know, myself that, hey, I had to, I need to put some strategies, some action steps and some strategies in place to kind of balance the, the scales, um, you know, so that, you know, the work-life balance was, was there. Uh, but I was definitely at a place, you know, a certain, I mean, this was true when I was single and married and, um, you know, just the idea of, of keeping that work-life balance, that was certainly a weakness and it was something that I was able to work through over time. And, you know, it involves a lot of communication with your spouse and, um, you know, making some strategic decisions at school. Uh, so that was certainly one. Uh, the other thing that I would say that sticks out to me that I had to work through was um, I'm not a naturally charismatic person, even though, you know, when I get in front of students, I usually, you know, have a lot more energy kind of thing, but I'm not naturally charismatic. And so early in my career, I remember, you know, kind of fluctuating between going, you know, is my role there to try to be someone else or look up to somebody else? And, you know, what I learned through the process was that I really needed to be myself. And that I found that um, my definition of charisma, if you want to put it that way, of charisma, um, was saying to students, you know, uh, I love and care about you. Uh, and, you know, that my words and actions kind of bear that out. Number two, that, you know, I believe in their success. Um, you know, I talked about this a little bit earlier. It also means that you can communicate to students that, you know, you have high standards and expectations but you believe in your heart that they're going to reach those high standards. You know, you can give students, you know, pretty high bars. And my experience has been they'll break the glass ceiling and go up there and get it. And then the other thing is just the idea of creating a safe environment, being vulnerable to the students and creating an environment where creativity, imagination and wonderment are fostered. So I found out for myself that I was if I was true to myself, um, uh, and that I led with um, compassion and building a culture 
and a, a really high standard for high level music making that all those things for me came under my definition of charisma. So those are, those are two things that, you know, in my career, the, the, the quality of life piece and trying to figure out the charisma piece, uh, those were two things that are, are vivid to me that were weaknesses that I felt like that I worked through. As we close out our time together, Scott, can you tell us um, what would be your closing encouragement or advice for our listeners? Well, you know, I, I think right now with everything happening with COVID-19, um, I'm teaching a class right now. Actually, I just finished teaching a class at Vandercook and an online class. And, you know, everybody's in a different place, but everybody is stressed with uh, the teaching environment right now. My wife's an elementary music teacher. She's teaching 12 Zoom classes a day. Uh, and everybody's just, you know, kind of, you know, had to reinvent the wheel to some extent. And the whole idea that we've just, the, our whole world has just kind of been turned upside down. Um, so my my words of encouragement are actually two things. One is that I think it's going to be absolutely pure joy when we get back together and things get back to normal. Um, I conduct an adult ensemble and some of the members even of the adult group uh, have reached out to me and said, we can't wait to get back together to make music. Uh, I think we're not, I think we're going to value every second of it. Uh, the other thing that I think is, I think we've learned some things during COVID-19 where we actually are gonna take the, some things that we wouldn't have normally done that we've applied like this semester we're going to keep those things going. And um, I think a lot of people have taken the opportunity to teach some things that maybe they wouldn't have taught otherwise, you know, whether that was conducting or a lot of rhythm vocabulary or, you know, uh, solo repertoire, or chamber ensembles or, you know, any number of things. I think we've learned some things, you know, new uses of technology. Uh, we've learned some things that I think as we move forward are just going to enhance, you know, everything that we do in the classroom. So I, I think just the opportunity to, to take what we've been faced with and turn it into something uh, joyous, because I really do think it's going to be uh, something that we're going to truly value when we get to the other side. Scott, can you also tell our listeners where they can connect with you or where they can um, find your books and materials? So the best way to reach me individually is through my email address, which is srush0, the number zero at yahoo.com. Uh, they can also reach me through habitsofsuccess.com. And they can also uh, reach me through um, uh, habitsuniversal.com. And um, for our resources, um, they can go to uh, giamusic.com and punch in, in anything in the habit series in the search engine and it'll pop up. Now, usually we have a thing called a the curtain call that we put on our website. It's kind of our time where we get to know our guest a little bit more without necessarily talking about leadership or teaching or anything like that. Um, but on this episode, we are actually going to include it in today's episode. So you get a feel for what that's like. And if you see something you like and you're like, hmm, I wonder what some other guests would have said for various questions like that, you can go to our website, thedirectorspodium.com. So let's jump right in here. Scott, can you tell us, um, you jump in the car, you're going to drive somewhere. Um, 
what are you listening to? Great question. Um, it really could be anything, but I am. I'll, some days it's it's going to be thing. Well, I'll tell you a quick story. I got in my car the other day, you know, turned on the car, and all of a sudden the Rachmaninoff second piano concerto was on, and uh, so it was near the end of the first movement, and I was like, oh, fantastic! The second movement's coming on. It's just a slow, beautiful movement, and um, so um, I started driving and I was just totally immersed in the music. And um, I realized after about 15 minutes, I was supposed to be driving this way to a school and I was just driving home. <laughs> I don't know why I was driving home, uh, but I was just driving home because I just totally got lost in the music. So uh, it could be anything from, you know, Mahler symphonies to uh, anything in the classical repertoire. It could be, um, you know, some of my favorite, you know, band composers, it could be Earth, Wind, and Fire. It could be Snarky Puppy. It could be, you know, the Strauss Serenade or the Mozart Grand Partita. Uh, <laughs> any any number of things. Okay, so let's talk about your kids a little bit. Um, what are they like? Are they big lovers of music? Yeah, so, you know, I, I, I think I mentioned earlier that my wife's an elementary music teacher. My son, Thomas, is in the 10th grade. He is um, a French horn player. And one of the great things about um, Thomas is that he and, he and I are, we're discovering music together, which is wonderful. He'll, he'll come to the car and he'll plug in his phone and he'll have whatever his newest piece that he's listening to. And I love just the collaboration of that. Tell you a quick story about that. He, um, when he was in the seventh grade, we took him to hear Mahler Symphony Number no. 1 and uh, went to the orchestra concert. And we got home that night and my wife and I were sitting on the bed. And all of a sudden, Thomas comes running through uh, into the bedroom and he goes, Dad, guess what? I said, what, Thomas? He goes, did you know there's a Mahler 2? <laughs> like it was a sequel to a movie or something. And uh, so I said, yeah, you keep, you know, you keep doing some, some digging there. You'll find a few more symphonies uh, than just two. Uh, so he's our horn player and he... Um, he, he really loves music. Caroline is our dancer. Matter of fact, last night we went to a performance. She was uh, Clara in the Nutcracker, and she also plays oboe. So um, Thomas in the 10th grade, Caroline's in the 5th grade. So did you face that fear of what if they don't love music the way I do? I'm really open to the idea that they, you know, be themselves and discover uh, various things on their own. I don't know, though, how they could grow up in this household uh, with me as their dad and their mom as an elementary music teacher, you know, without loving music because <laughs> they're, they're around it all the time. But, you know, I don't know, you know, what their plans are as they move forward. Um, you know, Thomas has got several things that he's looking at um, for college, and they're very different ideas. Uh, and I support them kind of being themselves, but I do want them to just, you know, love and, and resonate with music. And I think, you know, so far they have shown that, and, you know, Caroline the other day was um, singing the planets and she and I had, had no discussion about it whatsoever. She was just singing it. So, <laughs> so we had an interview with Frank Battisti this past episode, and he is a gem. Love Frank Battisti. Um, of course, you know, Frank was your 
conductor at the New England Conservatory of Music. Um, and so one of the questions that he asked was something that I'm going to throw your way. He said, do you think that conductors should have political skills? Wow, that's a that's an interesting question. Um, it kind of I think it depends on how you define the word political. Um, how do you define the word political? I think the intent of the question was dealing with politics in, you know, politics of everything that gets in the way of us trying to do music and whatnot. Or I guess he could be referring to politics outside, being an advocate for the arts or advocate for what we do. Not quite sure, but what would be your response to either way you would take that? Well, I think first and foremost, and, and I know, you know, um, let me say this first, Frank Batiste is a gem, and <laughs> he and I are actually writing a book together right now, and I can't tell you how much joy that brings my heart. <laughs> um, just the idea that we collaborated, you know, 30 uh, plus years ago uh, as, as him being my mentor and, and collaborated musically and for things to come back full circle um, and be able to collaborate. But what we're collaborating on is the idea of music making. And it is certainly our job to, um, to be music in the eyes of our students and to, um, to foster the, their imagination and creativity and wonderment and love for um, expression. So in that sense, I think that our job is to create that type of environment. Um, and I don't, you know, it's, I, I will say this, it's the word politics and being political is really interesting right now in our world. Things are divisive and in some ways they're kind of upside down and it doesn't matter, you know, which side you're on, uh, things are, are crazy. Uh, and uh, I think that our job is when we create a lab for music making, that that lab for music making also be a safe haven. And when we create a lab for music making, we create that safe haven. Students want to be a part of that. And to be quite honest with you, Parents want their children to be a part of that. They want to say, you know, I want my child to do that. And so I think in that sense, um, our job is to create um, is to create that environment. And we certainly don't need a Washington to help us do that. Now, if you're asking political in terms of being an advocate for the arts, I think that's a little bit different question. And I do think that we need to be passionate about uh, arts in our society and what it will do for young people and what it will do for our society. Scott, if you wouldn't have been a conductor um, and you had to choose something that was totally different and out of the realm, the music realm at all, what do you think you would have gone into? Well, obviously play in the NBA. So no, I'm, just, I'm, just, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, 
You know, that's that's a really interesting question. And the only way I can answer that is to say that there was a time in my life where um, I marine biology was really fascinating to me. And I'm still, um, you know, we live near the coast and we spend time, you know, just we spend time at the ocean and and all that. Um, but I don't, you know, I, from a very, very early age, um, you know, my brother and sister both played guitar. I started playing ukulele when I was four and I went to my first concert, uh, when I was really young, my first band concert, when I was really young, went to my first orchestra concert when I was 12 and I'd already started playing horn. And David Kim, who's the concert master of the Philadelphia Orchestra now, uh, he was 12 also, and he played a concerto with the orchestra. And I remember going to that concert, um, hearing David Kim play a concerto at age 12, going, you know, I need to go home and practice. <laughs> and uh, so from a very early age, and, and my dad always had music uh, in the house. Uh, I just remember from a very early age, feeling like that you know, it was what I wanted to do. And then I also had, I started taking private lessons from um, Robert Prusen, who taught at the University of South Carolina. And he was just one of those people that was a, an absolute rock in my life. And he taught me so much. Um, so I don't, I don't even know how to answer that question other than the fact that I think things happen because they're supposed to, and they started pretty early, pretty uh, early for me. And I know no other way to end this interview than to ask you this question. Um, what is your favorite sweet? Like if you're going to eat something and junk out on something, what's your favorite thing to eat that would be a sweet food? Okay, that's really easy for me, actually. Um, it's chocolate chip cookies. My first job, there was a certain time in the morning when the ladies in the cafeteria would do these Otis Spunkmeyer chocolate chip cookies. And I already like you know, chocolate chip cookies. The band room was close enough to the cafeteria that when they started making the cookies, I could smell it. And we just got this routine down where uh, if they didn't bring me a, a fresh chocolate chip cookie by a certain time, uh, I would send a student to get one. And uh, <laughs> so, I, you know, it probably was not healthy at all, but there were, there were years, literally years where I ate a chocolate chip cookie uh, every day of, of the school day, you know, every day of the week of the school day. I love, I love chocolate and love chocolate chip cookies. Um, matter of fact, Scott Lang um, did a book and I was in one of the chapters and the title of the chapter was Leonardo da Vinci and the chocolate chip cookie. Uh, he came up with that title uh, and but it was spot on. Yeah, I love chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your time, Scott. And thank you for listening and watching. We hope that um, this has been an enjoyable time for you. If you'd like to find out more from us or see more episodes, you can go to our website at thedirectorspodium.com or you could go to YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, or instagram and find out more from us from there you know don't forget this week everyone to take some time to rest and to re rejuvenate because 
You deserve it. You need to do that. And we hope that we provided you some inspiration to continue doing the vital work it is that you do. 